When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 23rd, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about, oh, what do you think we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about the United States' stick-a-fork-in-your-eye disaster in the Amazon slash. We played brilliantly and proved we belong on the world stage, goddammit. Two-to-two tie with Portugal on Sunday. Slate correspondent Luke O'Brien was at the game in steamy Manaus, Brazil, and he will paint a word picture of the scene. Also, we'll discuss the death of San Diego Padres hitting legend Tony Gwynn and what makes a sports hero. Slate executive editor Josh Levine is away this week. Joining me from Slate's New York bureau is Mike Pesca, host of the Slate Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hi, Mike Pesca. Hello. How are you? Good. Filling in for Josh, seated next to Mike is Brian Curtis, who is a staff writer for the worldwide website Grantland. Welcome to the show, Brian. An author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Some of you my wrote those popular books? titles. Those were good books. Thank you for having me. I feel like you guys, uh, with Josh opting out, you guys created some cap room, and uh, instead of Carmelo Anthony, you signed Bonzi Wells. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. The mid-level exception. That's right. <laughs> There's definitely a podcast called The Mid-Level Exception. There has to be, right? Yeah. There's every, every phrase in sports has been assigned to a website or a podcast. And if, and if one hasn't, it will. Mm-hmm. All right. Before I uh, self-immolate while discussing USA Portugal, a quick plug for a book event. Please join me 
New York Times columnist, legend George Vesey, and novelist, SAS New York expert Kevin Baker for a panel chat promoting the anthology For the Love of Baseball, a celebration of the game that connects us all. I wrote about my baseball glove. I will bring my baseball glove. The event is Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. at the Museum of the City of New York. We'll post a link on the Hang Up show page if you'd like to attend or even if you'd like not to attend. All right. I am still deflated, exhausted, gutted, gutted in the sense of sick to my stomach by what happened in Manaus on Sunday evening. The United States men's national soccer team allowed a gift goal in the fifth minute and another gift goal, albeit a beautiful gift goal from a superb cross by the best player in the world in the fifth minute of stoppage time to fall 2-2 two to, two to Portugal. A win would have secured U.S. advancement to the round of 16. The tie leaves everything to be determined by a game on Thursday against Germany, who will have 27 more hours of rest, didn't play in a rainforest, or have to take the equivalent of three New York to Los Angeles flights. Mike Pesca, you watched the game. You were not there. What were your impressions? Okay. We'll talk about the game in a second. All those, those Klinsman-esque bits of whininess, please. Yeah. I'm getting over it. I'm trying. It's going to take me more than 12 get o- hours. Get over it by tell- saying that Michael Bradley needed to bury that ball in the back of the net. Not because we have to take extra plane flights. It's a plane flight. We're not forging down the Amazon with Werner Herzog documenting our every move. It's a plane <laughs> flight. There are four days between games. We'll be fine. Um, so I thought they shouldn't have let the Portuguese score on that last play. You that think? was a bad decision. <laughs> um, also, I think that even though the announcers were saying how well Michael Bradley did in ways that maybe led to other things that possibly could have gone right but actually didn't, in the huge moments where he could have done something, he screwed up. He, he didn't have a f- good first game. He didn't have a second game. Hate to, th- hate to point to a goat, especially one that looks like a little bit like Billy Corrigan. But there you go. And the other thing that I would say is that even though it is true that we seem to have outplayed the Portuguese for most of the game, well, that is certainly true. And it does seem true that we were better, we, because, you know, I'm a center back, that the U.S. was better in this game than they were in the first game against Ghana. It's a very different thing to go up 1-0 than to go down 1-0. So we were pressing and putting on pressure in this game, and we held the ball more, and it we. But anyway, it seemed like we were doing a lot better against Portugal, but I think a lot of that has to do with the score at the time. And the result is the result, and it's fine. We have, we're very likely to, we're, we're not that likely to beat Germany. We may tie Germany. And even if we don't, we're, and Portugal wins that game, unless we get blown out by Germany, we're, we'll, we'll advance to the next round. So I think we'll be okay. We'll get to the possible scenarios in a bit. Um, Brian, I know you are not a 4-4-2 versus 4-5-1 sort of guy. So how did you experience this? And are you, are you, and are you becoming a 4-4-2 versus 4-5-1 sort of guy well, because of this game? If there was a game to make me that, I think this was probably it. I mean, that felt to me incredibly freighted. I mean, with, you know, all kinds of things. You know, the obvious one is, of course, soccer's uh, continuing march across the American sporting scene, you know, with every with every moment of that game. But I, And the other one was I was trying to think of a post-USSR Olympic event that seemed not just huge and important and all that stuff. There's been plenty of those, but seemed as big for America and sort of American bragging rights as that game. I mean, maybe we're just so good at everything in the Summer Olympics that there's really not that thing anymore. But it seemed just like an incredibly, you know, 
I don't say important, that seems a stupid word, but important game. And, you know, the way it ended, of course, did that. I was wondering, is, was Michael Bradley treated, uh, to what Mike said, as enough of a goat at the end of that game? I mean, he felt like, I mean, if he bends down, right, and grabs the ball with his hands and throws it the other way, you know, and, and it's, it's better than what happened, right? The only yeah. thing he can't do is misplay the ball, put the U.S. back on the defensive quickly and, and allow Correct. Portugal to score. Correct. Right? There were 40 seconds to kill. He had nothing but open grass around him. He failed to control a ball. He was bodied off of it uh, by a Portuguese player, and they had a counterattack in which the ball wound up on the feet of the best player in the world, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, it was not a good situation. There were other examples if we want to be if we want to sort of wallow in it. A couple minutes earlier, DeAndre Yedlin, who played great, 20 years old, defender, Klinsman brings him on in the midfield to run for the last few minutes. He has an opportunity to dribble the ball into the corner and kill another 15 to 20 seconds. Instead, he sort of aimlessly crosses the ball to the middle. We had three central defenders on after Omar Gonzalez is subbed in in the 90th minute and were beaten by a ball into the middle of the field. Again, albeit a great ball by Cristiano Ronaldo. Into the middle of uh, into, into the middle of the goal mouth. Um, so there were plenty of people that you can criticize. Jeff Cameron, among them, the defender who whiffed on the ball and allowed the first Portuguese goal, and again was one of those three central defenders who wasn't there on the final cross of the game. That's the you know that's the glass half empty take, and it's a pretty empty half of glass of water. There is a glass half full take, and a lot of people have are, are sort of talking about that this morning. I was watching the Men in Blazers podcast. Uh, I was watching the Men in Blazers video podcast, and Michael Davis said that the U.S. became a football nation yesterday. They played tough. They were resolute. They played creatively. They played a team that has five players in the Champions League. Uh, ranked fourth in the world. It's friggin' Portugal, and we kicked their ass for 85 minutes playing great, great soccer. So I, I hate these sort of cultural narrative, we are America storylines, but you can make a case that we did become a soccer country yesterday. No way. If we lose to Germany by a lot and we're out, that meant nothing. It was just a good game, and it was a disappointing game, and it was a dramatic game, and the bars all along 2nd Avenue where I was were packed, so I'm sure the ratings were uh, buffo. But it was it, it's not a transcendent game without it being in a knockout stage, without it really being Without a, winning. Yeah, without be, being a dispositive game, even if we did win, that would have just got us to the next knockout stage. And if we, you know, had lost to Belgium or uh, or Algeria or South Korea, then it would have been not much better. Then it would have been no better than we did last time around. So that's what it needs to be, you know, to 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 change everything. And by the way, the reason that Bradley's the goat is not just the last play, right? The reason the game wasn't three to one at that point right. was because he tapped the ball at not the goalkeeper, but a defender. Right. And like, I understand these, this is soccer. This is how things go. I'm not as skilled an observer of the sport. So I couldn't note the many good things that Bradley did, but the, Two of the three worst plays, that Cameron failure to clear straight mm -hmm. out of my fifth grade soccer experience, that was the worst. But the other two were Bradley's fault. But that's okay. Chance at redemption. I do find it funny, the whole kind of characterological study of, of soccer. I mean, watching this again for the first time, probably more intensely this year than I ever have. The announcers, we talk about Men in Blazers, my pals over at uh, Grantland. This idea that because the U.S. didn't just lie down and get, literally lie down on the pitch and give up, yeah. it became this sort of moment, right? We played bravely. Mm -hmm. We played yeah. smartly. We played with heart. We played with feeling. And it's really funny. I mean, I, 
But we I also played so creatively, much. and that's more important. We played positively. We attacked. We also, we also we played, played really well. The, we also right, played a right. team that was extremely injured that's not that good, that relies on Ronaldo, who's clearly hurt. Like, I'm not... That Portugal side that we played against, although they say Portugal on the shirt, was not a great team and should have been beaten. I think that's part of the real appeal of soccer, though, is this kind of melodramatic League of Nations, you know, we are the brave country, they are the... Uh, they are the cowardly, yellow-bellied country. They are, you know, we are we are getting braver by the moment. Yeah. You know, we, mm-hmm. we we will not know defeat. That's certainly, I mean, it's it is infused with every second of the commentary, present company excluded, <laughs> about this World Cup. It's really, really funny. It's sort of part, and also partly, the announcer combos are always one Brit and one American. And I feel the Brit is the one bringing the that sort of. You know, kind of yeah. melodramatic feel. You're wearing the bunker. Yeah. Here we go. You know what? What? What news today? What news today of yeah. of our fate in the world? And, and uh, I've 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 always argued for a long time that and and I'll and I'll go back to the the point that that you were making, Mike. That this isn't earth changing potentially, but it is part of the continuum. It's part of this long decades long process that will transform us into a soccer country. It is one more example of people caring more than they cared four years ago about what happens at this tournament to a bunch of American guys that most people haven't really heard of or followed closely. You know, John Hawk and, and Roger Bennett's documentary series following the U.S. team, that was landmark. ESPN's never done that before. Nobody's done that before. Uh, the, the people at U.S. Soccer told John that they've been waiting for that moment for 20 years for someone to say, we want to make a series about your men's team. Um, you know, and, and Brian, I want to ask you, because you, you spent some time interviewing George Vesey and other writers who covered the 1982 World Cup when no Americans went there. And if you sort of start at that point and march forward to today, you see how this decades long evolution, evolution, evolu- you see how this decades long evolutionary process is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And when you say no Americans went to the Cup in 82, you include American soccer players because the team didn't qualify at all, which made it a giant ask for George Vesey, who was a columnist of the New York Times, to convince his editors to actually send him. I mean, it was interesting because I feel that when I was working on that, it was sort of a microcosm, right, of what you're talking about, Stefan, all of us in the U.S. as fans, as writers, as whatever, figuring out the game, daring to sound stupid, uh, but, you know, drinking it in and, and, and trying to become good soccer, good, smart soccer observers. One of the funny things Vetsy told me is that he didn't know anything about soccer because there was nowhere in the United States to learn about soccer. No men in blazers. There was no, you know, really could read Paul Gardner's Soccer America. But other than that, nobody was covering the international game. And so basically... And it wasn't as if Soccer America was widely available. <laughs> yeah, right. On, on better bookstores everywhere. Yeah. But you... Uh, soccer limited portions of America. <laughs> Mail order now. But you could, you know, that was basically it. You know, there was a lot of writing about the Cosmos. But the Cosmos, he said, were really old and slow. It was like watching Meadowlark Lemon, you know, 50-year-old Meadowlark Lemon in those Farewell World Tours. You know, But when Pele threw the bucket of confetti, it was awesome. <laughs> exactly. But so I, it was a really strange experience. And he said, sitting in the press box, and I found myself doing this a little bit last night, was uh, you had to actually train your brain to watch soccer. You know, if you'd never watched it before or never watched it at that speed uh, you know, it was really confusing and really hard to sort of figure out. Like, you know, the, the Bradley play was interesting, right? Because Vasily told me you had to look at that and say, okay, remember this Bradley mis- misplay because, you know, something may happen and in, in my story, this is going to be the inciting event. Right. In We're the 50th minute of a game, Bradley misses that ball and it, and it results in an aimless cross that winds up with nothing and you don't even remember it. Right, right, exactly. And so it was just a total... 
it was a retraining of the journalist's mind, and I think probably we're seeing that now everywhere, right? The retraining of the American mind to appreciate soccer. I have another idea about this. And I'm way into soccer, and I loved going to the World Cup, and uh, I was thrilled with the game, and I'm getting my kids into it. But, you know, in 1982, where Vessi's pointing out as a nadir of soccer in America, to me, I was 10 or 11. I I had played soccer for a number of years. I had a lot of relatives in Brooklyn, and I remember during the World Cup, we watched as Italy won, and it seemed like a really huge deal, and maybe because I didn't know what sports were important or not, but the Cosmos did get a ton of attention. Like, they were regular um, kind of almost household names, I think, as much as any of the Knicks in 1982 or the Mets in 1982. Terrible teams, and here were the Cosmos. So I I never got the sense that soccer was, uh, you know... So, you know, somewhere like where Highlight is now or something. And then I want to credit this nation coming together and this how important the moment was. I just think as our teams get better, they're going to advance more and we're going to be into it. And remember, this soccer ascent coincides with the sports bubble. So if you look back, if you compare it to the 1994 World Cup in the United States, where you know, even even mainstream announcers who were broadcasting the World Cup would say, I saw on NBC News, they played a clip of uh, Tom Brokaw introducing the World Cup in 94, saying, now, you might not care. It's not football, but here's another sport that's going to be popular in America, they say. See, I just think that if you... If you Consider the moment we are with uh, the rise of all the other sports. If you consider, you know, the ethnic changes in America, all the things we always talk about, it's totally logical that soccer would be having its time now. And to ascribe it as like yesterday was the day that America proved that we could play with Portugal. I just don't think someone from Bosnia or someone from Ghana or someone uh, dispassionate person watching the game would say, yes, the Americans have arrived. I would say they would think that America's a country of 318 million who should be good at soccer, who gave it up in the last second. Anyway, we could, we could advance to the group stage, win a couple matches, and then they'll say America's arrived if we make the quarters, let's say. All right, let's bring in Luke O'Brien, who is covering the World Cup for Slate in Brazil. Luke, how's it going down there? It's hot. Very hot. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Luke O'Brien. It's been great having you on Hang Up and Listen. All right, Luke, athletes tend to deal with heartbreak and defeat far more pragmatically than fans or journalists. You went to the press conferences after the game last night. Um, what was the tenor? I mean, how did Michael Bradley handle it and Tim, o- Tim Howard and the rest? What was your, what was your take? Well, I saw Klinsman. Like I told you, I went to the mix zone first, and that was the wrong wrong move. So I got to the press conference, and Klinsman was speaking, and and he handled it uh, as you might imagine, as Klinsman would handle it, very very upbeat. Um, and he was asked several times whether we're gonna we're gonna fix the game against Germany. Uh, three or four questions came in uh, about that, and he he took it all in stride, you know. And and I think he's he's trying to put a, a positive spin on it, but there, there's no way that uh, <laughs> the team doesn't feel kind of gutted after after that last minute goal. Because if the United States actually beats Germany, it would be better for the United States in terms of we would win the group, so and not have I, to play Belgium. Yeah, not have to play Belgium. And even more importantly, avoid a Belgium. Well, that would also bring about a Belgium-Germany matchup. And those flags are so similar, it might either be interesting. Or it would be a vexillological nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think I think you want to avoid Belgium at, at all costs. Uh, they didn't play so great in their first game. But um, 
you guys remember the friendly where they they absolutely thrashed us and i i think that it's a tall order to beat germany though um who knows what's going to happen but it's it, belgium getting getting away from belgium would be great i don't know who's who who we'd be up against though in that next group algeria who's, or south korea guys, right? <laughs> let's not get yeah, ahead of well, ourselves we'd want, we'd want algeria wouldn't we right uh rematch against them Luke, I had an urgent uh, geopolitical question about the stadium yesterday. Ian Dark noted on the broadcast that Portuguese players were hoping Brazilian fans would be cheering for them because they, I think, as he put it, they had linguistic and cultural yes. ties. And cultural and, and cultural. historic ties. Which is a nice yes. way to say they were our former colonists. <laughs> Can you settle this for us, Luke? Were the third-party Brazilian fans cheering for Portugal or the United States? Uh, there were, there were a, a smattering of Brazilians cheering for Portugal, but I would say the majority of the Brazilians were behind the United States. I saw a lot of Brazilians wearing U.S. jerseys and had the face paint on, uh, which which was interesting. It's different, I think, than what you might see in, in other cities, too, like Sao Paulo. I saw a lot of people, a lot of Brazilians identifying with the, the Portuguese team. You'd see people flying from their apartment uh, buildings, Brazilian flags and Portuguese flags, but, you know, the cities are very different. Sao Paulo's kind of got the, the upper class still, and it's racially divided here, too. So Manaus is really a, a world apart, and I've been surprised at, at how much people embrace the United States here and not just the United States, but the World Cup. The other cities I've been to, people have kind of had mixed feelings about the tournament as a whole, even their own team, the Salasau. They, they, some people are backing them, some people aren't. Um, but here in Manaus, they're really celebrating the World Cup and they just seem so happy to have, to have the games here. Um, and plus, yeah, I mean, who really likes the Portuguese anyway, right? That, that's interesting, Luke. I mean, has Manaus not experienced the protests that we've seen in other Brazilian cities against the World Cup? I would say no. No, not at all. No, I haven't heard of any, and I have seen, uh, you know, I talked to one guy on the street who was selling books, and he had a display of, of newspaper uh, front pages from, from all the World Cups in the past about the Brazilian national team and how well they've done. And then right next to it, he had some clippings, uh, uh, political stories, uh, all about the corruption in the government. And he wanted his team to lose. He wanted Brazil to lose. But he's really the only guy I talked to here who, who seemed upset about it. In the other cities, you, you can feel it. I mean, you talk to the cabbies, you talk to people in the hotels, you talk to the fans. And, and a lot of them are not happy. I mean, they're trying to get behind their team or another team, but, but they don't really know how to. Uh, here in Manaus, and I really think it's because geographically it's, it's so different than the rest of Brazil. Uh, it's totally isolated. And, uh, you know, people feel like you're going to another country here, Brazilians within their own country going to Manaus. A lot of them, I've never been to Manaus. A lot of them go to Miami instead of Manaus. And uh, when I told people I was coming here, in other cities, they were shocked. You know, why would you ever want to go there? But it, so, you, so you, you fly into this little enclave that's, that's carved out of the jungle. I mean, you can see, literally see the perimeter of the city. It just stops and the jungle begins. And it, it, it's this surreal little place. Um, so I think the way that they've responded to the World Cup is very different. And it, I'm sure it does have something to do with, with their geographic isolation here. Well, just just building the stadium there became the, if not a, maybe even the symbol of wastefulness and poor planning and 
FIFA excess. Well, now from what you've seen, render a judgment. Do you think it was a good idea to have a venue be there, given that the venue might not even be able to draw crowds in the future? Yeah, uh, well, that's that's a tough one to answer because I, I think it's great that they had a World Cup event here. I, and my opinion has changed since in a few days since I've been here. You know, I came in thinking, oh, this is another white elephant they, that they build, and and FIFA has pushed for this. And I'm not even sure FIFA pushed for it because I've been hearing things that, you know, FIFA wanted eight venues. I think it's twelve, and uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know. Uh, campaigning for it on a local level, some of these places. So, local, you know, Brazilian politicians and, and business expanded this to, to to twelve venues, is what I've been told. So, people here really did want it. Uh, everyone I've talked to, and they do have four semi-professional teams. There's no way they can ever fill this stadium with those fans. I mean, I don't even know how many they draw, but a couple hundred. Um, and I've, you know, I've heard that. The best thing to do economically after the World Cup is over with the stadium is literally to tear it down and sell off the metal for scrap. Um, that said, it, it's been such a different experience being here. It's been it's been kind of that classic joyous feeling that that you expect when you go to these World Cup cities that I haven't seen in other cities where people have reservations. So. The local people here are happy for it. Now, in you know, four years, you look at what happened in South Africa, um, and some of those some of those stadiums are not getting used as they should. So, four years from now is really when we're going to be able to tell. But um, right now, it's 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 very positive here. It's a good feeling here. Brian, go ahead. The um, you know, I was just I was just contemplating the the stadium in Manaus being uh, torn down and sold for scrap, like the Detroit Silverdome, which was recently relieved of its copper wire, and that was the most valuable thing in it. Now, I was wondering too, did you? How was how? It was very hard to tell as a viewer on the broadcast how loud the fans were in the stadium compared to American sporting events, since you've got the you know obviously the two fan bases and then some some population of uh, third party fans. How loud was it inside that stadium yesterday? It got pretty loud. Uh, I've, I've heard it louder. Uh, there, were, there seemed like there were two main congregations of U.S. fans in the corners at one end of the field, American outlaws probably, and and, and they and they definitely made some noise. There's, you know, this I believe that we will win chant, uh, which is the new one for this year. That's been, yeah, everybody's doing that, and that that do took it, over the stadium it. several do it, times. Do it, Luke. Do the chant. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win, guys, <laughs> against Germany. <laughs> so yeah, it did get it did get a little loud. Uh, you know, when you're in the press box, uh, it, it's it's a totally different experience. Uh, I've sat with the fans during during a game, and you can only hear if you're with the U.S. fans. All you hear are the U.S. chants. Uh, when you're in the press box, you kind of hear both sides. So the port the, the Portuguese fans, there's. You know, they, they, they got into it a little bit, and I think a few of the Brazilians were sporting them, but really it, it seemed like a, a pro-U.S. crowd. And then after that goal, I mean, <laughs> was, there was just absolute confusion in the stadium, and the fans sat there. They sat there for about 10, 15 minutes, the U.S. fans, wondering what had just happened, trying to process it all, and I, I hadn't seen that before. I want to ask you one thing. Have you had any interesting interactions with uh, flora or fauna? I have, actually. Uh, funny you should ask. So I, I commandeered a fast boat out of, out of the port the other day, and uh, we, we went off into the jungle and, and 
I very interesting experience because you leave the city, and within half an hour you can't see it anymore, and it's all green all around you. And we went down a few little tributaries, and it's a little hokey, a little touristy, but you know there are Indians in canoes waiting for you as you come down some of these tributaries, and they come up to your boat. Uh, and they start sticking animals in your face. So they want you to hold them, and then you, you take a picture with the animal and give them a few coins. Um, so I got a tree sloth. I got a tree sloth, sho- sloth shoved in my face, which was uh, which was a fun experience. But in Brazil, tree sloths are like it. the Elmos in Times Square. Anything else, guys, before we let Luke go? Yeah, one thing. I, Jeremy Schapp tweeted a picture of the, the biggest moth I've ever seen. Are, have the, are the insects that big? I think it was oh, a yes. cicada. I forgot to mention. Uh, yeah. They are. They're, they're enormous. They're like bat size. And they were all over the stadium the other night. They, they were flying into, out of the jungle and into the lights of the stadium. So when I, when I got to my seat, there were three or four dead moths already there. And they're flying over the, over the field the whole game. So that was never seen that before either. Never seen a water break during a game. It was it was a, it was a weird experience. This whole place is weird. <laughs> Luke O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us from Manaus. Safe travels. Thank you, guys. Tony Gwynn died last week at age 54 of complications from salivary cancer. He was the greatest pure hitter of the 1980s and 1990s. 3,141 hits, won eight batting titles, charmed every reporter and fan who crossed his path. He also played his entire career for one team, the San Diego Padres, a rarity sort of up there with Cal Ripken, with whom he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Brian uh, Gwynn was, you know, he was sort of a, Black and white legend. He played in the modern media age during the free agent and steroid eras. But like Ripken, he's been elevated to the sort of prelapsarian pantheon of greatness. How come? <laughs> couple of, a couple of reasons, I think. One is the, uh, you know, it was so much part of the Tony Gwynn legend about how much he studied, right? How much he studied video of opposing pitchers. Revolutionized and, the use of video. Right. You know, and I think, you know, that in a way, you know, it's sort of, on purpose or not on purpose, that be, that sort of overwhelms how just naturally good a hitter Tony Gwynn was, you know, and we as fans think, oh my gosh, he was really good because he worked so hard. He becomes the Larry Bird of the NL West, you know, in that way. He's just studying. If we could just study, if we just watched that much tape, we could hit, you know, Greg Maddox as well as he could. Obviously, you know, there he was good because he studied and he was good because he was really, really good. But uh, that's one of the things. I think the roly-poly attainable physique, mm-hmm. uh, you know, similar to the lovability of Kirby Puckett, who was not a lovable guy, it turned out, uh, and also died way too soon, by the way. But, uh, you know, an attainable physique, which I'm working on right now myself. <laughs> and I think, you know, the You're other... using tape, you're rev- revolutionizing <laughs> tape to get there. There you go. And I think the other thing is, you know, what you mentioned about steroids, I mean, I think implicitly or explicitly, and I think with, well, from what I've read, it's more implicit in the Tony Gwynn tributes. Any player who was quote-unquote clean, and we have to do air quotes around, I guess, everybody from that era now, in the 90s, is a sort of implicit rebuke to the guys who weren't clean. And what's interesting to me in Gwynn's case, talking to a bunch of baseball writers from that age, is that he was the source, along with probably Ken Griffey Jr., uh, as early as 88 and 89, whispering to reporters, or just he even talked on the record about it, saying, something's happening here in this game, and you guys should look into it, and it's not fair and, you know, I think reporters listened to him and sometimes used what he said and sometimes didn't. But 
look back on him as a guy who was trying to tell us something that we weren't ready to hear. Well, Mike, should we like that about Tony Gwynn or do we does that make him a sort of rat? That you know, come on. <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you. I'll let you re-ask that question. I mean, he's he did absolutely the right thing um, on that issue. I think I I I, I criticized Tony Gwynn. I don't know out loud, but I always thought that him staying in San Diego got a lot of positive attention. But I also thought that there was a bit of a downside to that, which is that he's not one of these guys who pushed himself to jump to a championship team, to put himself in a position to win a championship. And it it was pretty clear that a lot of those Padre teams were not going to do anything. So he was in a comfortable place, and he stayed there, and he accumulated his batting titles. But shouldn't shouldn't a real champion, the thinking went tried to put himself in a position where they could win. You know, in retrospect, I don't even know how much. I just thought that was an argument that bore thinking about. I don't know how much I even buy it. People said it at the time. I do give credit to a guy like Carmelo Anthony who opts out of a contract and, you know, maybe takes less money to play for a winner. I know Knicks fans are going to be upset with that, but I think I think that speaks well to his um, to his competitiveness. And it wasn't that Tony Gwynn didn't have competitiveness. I think he just, you know, per, I think he just displayed different traits that are rare among professional athletes. And the, the other thing I'll say about Tony Gwynn is he played at a time when batting average, no one questioned how important batting average was. And that's really important. And it seemed wrong to even criticize to- Tony Gwynn for not hitting for power because of all the other things he did, like not striking out. But in the modern age, not only has batting average been devalued, but strikeouts, the stigma has taken away from them. I mean, the two great things you'd hear about Tony Gwynn are obviously the high number, and then there'd always be some amazing stat about how he struck out twice against some pitcher who struck everyone out. Never struck out against Greg Maddox. He never struck out against, you know, things like that. And that seems awesome. But now what we, how we think about strikeouts, it's less awesome. But when you add into it the person that Gwynn seemed to be, it's still this great loss that is really really a shame. I don't know. If somebody were hitting 394 in August this year, I still think it would be celebrated in a gigantic, gigantic way. I mean, the one downside to Gwyn staying in San Diego was that by shunning free agency and taking these below-market contracts, he depressed the overall market for stars in baseball. Not that baseball was suffering from a lack of own of lack of owners willing to pay top dollar, but clearly, when one of the best players in the game chooses not to take as much money as he can, it does have an effect on the overall market. But good for him for making that personal choice. The Padres did make it to a World Series. Um, he did make them a lot better. He did make them competitive. Certainly not every year. Um, but don't we? I admire a guy that's willing to sacrifice some of those things, and I don't think it reflects badly on his competitiveness that he wanted to stay in a place that made him happy as a human being, that made his life better, that he could have a sort of outsized, outsized effect on the community. Yeah, you say baseball suffered from a lack of owners who were willing to play players. With they also colluded in that era, too, just to sure. not pay players. And specifically, San Diego suffered from a lack of owners who were willing to play base- right. pay baseball players what they were worth. It's funny because it points out this sort of contradiction of what we think about players, right? We want them to be, on the one hand, wildly ambitious. And at the same time, we want them to be totally content with where they are, right? We could easily, just as easily pick on the Padres, right, for not surrounding Tony Gwynn with, with championship-level yeah. talent like, say, the Yankees or somebody else would have. But no, I think that's right. And, I, I, you know, it's, to come back to batting average for a second, I think that's really funny. Rob Nyer tweeted 
Um, I think I'm getting this right, that Tony Gwynn's batting average with two strikes was 308, which is just absolutely incredible. But he does, you know, when we talk about the pre-Lapsarian past, he is this messenger, right? Oh, wait, it's the day when we all understood what baseball stats were. Tony Gwynn was a great baseball player because he hit 394. It makes total sense. You know, if you're old, if you reject advanced stats, if you embrace advanced stats, it all makes sense. It is this, he is this figure from a simpler a simpler time in baseball. Yes, and a I think time that in baseball, pe- the 1990s. Yeah, and I think that, well, I mean, his greatest years were, you know, 86 and 87. But I think that back then, I remember the argument being made maybe by some uh, wise old timers, definitely by sports writers and the uh, guys from Chicago, the sports writers at the table that I used to watch. And the argument went something like, you know what, home runs are flashy. Home runs are get you attention, but Tony Gwynn's playing the real baseball, you know, to have all those base hits, there's a more of an ethic there. There's more of a value to that than what we think about with the home run. And that, now that's not true. Hey, Tony Gwynn, after Roger Clemens led the league in war, if you want to go by that statistic, and he had great years by old stats and by new stats, but it's not true that home runs are devalued and singles are these great things. And I would also say, Stefan, about the him depressing the market, I think any economist would tell you that cash compensation is just any economist or anyone who thinks about it, and you would agree, of course, that cash compensation is only one part, part of, of you know, mm-hmm. what what uh, the, the, what it means to be well compensated, what it, well, what it means to have, you know, fair remuneration. And no one, therefore, can, should ever be criticized for being in a situation he loves and not pursuing money if he loves that situation. I think ultimately what elevates Tony Gwynn above other stars in sports is his character, is that he was this lovable, roly-poly, friendly guy with a high-pitched voice. The one time I interviewed him was in the dugout at Yankee Stadium during that World Series, and he could not have been more forthcoming to every reporter that was around him. You know, what's your name? What do you, who do you write for? What do you want to talk about? Um, I also went out to San Diego to do a story and and talked to him out there, too. So it was two times I actually talked to him. Um, And, you know, there was that lovely tribute to to Gwyn on Deadspin by a former Padres bat boy named David Johnson. Gwyn went to Foot Locker himself to pick out some Nikes for the bat boys. He said, you're welcome to fans after autographs. These, like, simple kindnesses rolled in with his his little teddy bear physique and his outgoing you know, curious personality, you know, made him such a more attractive hero for kids, someone you'd want to put his poster up on the wall compared to, I don't know, Derek Jeter, who gets praised for all of his, you know, staying in New York and being a good guy and never cheating. But ultimately, his character has been kind of empty as a as a as a figure. It's probably harder given New York, the different given the difference between New York and San Diego and 2014 and 1986 and all the money involved. You don't think the Union Tribune was uh, printing uh, Tony Gwynn's mistress's, uh, mistress's exploits on their own page six? <laughs> he gave gift baskets to women he never even slept with. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I mean, what you're saying, Stefan, is that Tony Gwynn is not a sports writer's idea of a great character guy, but an actual person's idea of a great character guy, yes. right? He didn't just give hand the goodies to the writers and be nice in interviews, which lots of people do, right, that turn out to be jerks or whatever. But, but he was actually a he nice seemed guy genuine. evidence. He seemed genuine. And that is why 
this is too good to be true, and it will all come crashing down to earth. <laughs> he also if I know anything about sports and heroes. <laughs> the he also, horrible Tony Gwynn stories are about to emerge. He also Pinochet and his ascent to power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He also was addicted to chewing tobacco, which he blamed for his cancer, though there doesn't appear to be an ironclad case that it caused his cancer. Yeah, one of the saddest things was hearing about. Tony Gwynn saying the clerks that he, he'd, he'd go late at night so the clerks wouldn't recognize him, but he knew that they would and they wouldn't want to sell it to him, but he had to. I mean, he was addicted. And even if you can't uh, prove that that was the proximate cause of death, it didn't help his health. And, you know, he just he felt addicted to it. He felt in thrall to it. And um, I think these efforts to try to get chewing tobacco out of the game are nothing but good efforts. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of Lyle Alzado, right? There was a little bit of a question when he died, whether it was because of steroids mm-hmm. or that steroids played a role or steroids didn't play a role at all, but steroids are bad mm-hmm. and we should get them out of the game and, and that kind of thing. Where and it I sort think of becomes maybe the, you know, the question is, is the greater good, you know, is the greater good important enough that you just kind of gloss over the science a little bit or you just kind of say, well, it was good that he took the right cause, whether, whether or not it's actual. And toward the end of his life, he obviously did take the right, the right cause or the right approach by by saying it was bad and he wanted to get it banned from the game. Yeah, no, but I think it's more than that. Like, even if that isn't the cause of death, I think every doctor would say that has, you know, bad health outcomes associated with it. Mm-hmm. And maybe the, maybe it's not as clear with the steroids and Alzado, although most doctors would say, you know, taking powerful drugs not in the care of the physician is really bad. But so, yeah, does it really matter if that's the exact thing that killed him, if that contributed to his health? declining, if that weighed on him mentally so that he didn't have a control over it, since he had all those things up, it it would be good if uh, we as a society and baseball players chewed less or even no tobacco. It was part of his routine. His much heralded routine was, if I stop chewing tobacco, I'm not going to be a good hitter anymore. I'm going to get, I'm going to change something about what makes, you know, the kind of Wade Boggsy mojo of what makes me a great baseball player. And so in a way, it's, you know, one of the most, it is the, one of the least admirable things about him, or well, let, I don't know if it's least, less admirable, but one of his flaws, let us say, was tied into one of the most admirable things, about yeah. him, which was his routine and the way he went up to the plate every time. It's, it's a fascinating. And then he story. turned it around to make it an admirable thing in that at the end, he recognized it and he tried to help other people. God, when, when he comes crashing down to earth, I'm going to cry. <laughs> All right, let's move on to after balls. Let's honor Tony Gwynn. He attended Long Beach Polytechnic High School in Long Beach, California. The team, the, the school's mascot, the Jackrabbits. Mike Pesca, what's your Jackrabbit? A couple days ago, I was in New Haven for the Arts and Ideas Festival. If you've ever seen me attempt art, you know I was there for the ideas. And so I was on a panel called Thinking About Sports. Nikki Davidoff ran the panel. He's been on Hang Up and Listen. He wrote a book about the Jets called Collision Low Crossers. But uh, one of the things we did is we all talked about an athlete that in some way impressed us or uh, kind of changed our conception of sports. Frank Ford talked about Billie Jean King and Arthur Ashe. And um, Elizabeth Alexander, who was on the panel, talked about Muhammad Ali. She wrote a big poem. Uh, And then Nikki talked about Pedro Martinez, so I wanted to play some of that. Not safe for work, kids, but man, this is a good anecdote. Some of you may know of the famous interview that he did for Sports Illustrated for Kids when they asked him if he had any secret ambitions. And I'm sorry about the language, guys, but his answer to Sports Illustrated for Kids was, I want to fuck Sandra Bullock. (laughs) 
I told you that he was brave. And then, the, and, the, and, and then the reporter said to him, but, you know, Pedro, you're speaking to a children's magazine. And he said, oh, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't realize. I would like to make sweet love to Sandra Bullock. <laughs> Brian, what is your jackrabbit? Guys, I'd like to pass on an important update about the group of people who are not enjoying the World Cup this year. I speak of soccer trolls. <laughs> we know soccer trolls. They've been around since at least the late 70s, insisting that soccer sucks, that soccer is un-American, that soccer is un-American, and therefore it is also communist. Soccer trolls pointed out that soccer doesn't involve a player's hands, which itself is un-American and therefore also communist. Google News actually <laughs> informed me of the panel, the aforementioned panel that Mike Pesca refers to, in which longtime soccer opponent Frank DeFord declared, I don't care how good you are with your feet. God gave us these hands to separate us from the beasts of the field. That is a soccer troll. And for decades, it was a very lucrative position. <laughs> to which Mike Pesca immediately replied, oh, like Luis Suarez, <laughs> beasts of the field. <laughs> in 2014, however, the soccer troll has a bit of a problem. Soccer is more popular than ever in the United States, as we said, and the downside to publishing a cheap anti-soccer tirade is similar to the disrepute you'd get from flaming advanced stats like OPS. You'd look unhip, you'd look like the old Simpsons gag of man yells at cloud. To that end, soccer trolls have to make a tactical adjustment. So for the 2014 World Cup, they've rolled out a savvier and more lethal model. Guys, let me introduce you to the T-1000 of internet yucksters, the guys who, unlike Jurgen Klinsmann, aren't conceding anything, the new American Soccer troll. And here's some, let me give you five examples right. that I found. New American soccer troll tactic number one. Admit that there's nothing wrong with soccer. You just don't like to read tweets about it. This comes from the talented political policy writer Jonathan Chait, who recently tweeted, To keep my feed manageable, I unfollow those who tweet about sports I'm not watching. Nothing personal if I unfollow you, soccer tweeters. Now, if Chait weren't such a progressive liberal champion, I'd say this sounds an awful lot like those people who were bothered by Michael Sam's televised kiss. Hey, what a person watches in his own home is his business, but why do you have to throw it in my face? <laughs> But in fact, that's totally unfair because Jade is a liberal champion. Just joking. And in fact, he's devised a sneaky way to thwart pro-soccer partisans. All he's asking for is peace during the World Cup, not a flood of feed-killing one-word tweets when Portugal ties the game. See how smart soccer trolls have gotten? New American soccer troll tactic number two. Admit that soccer is getting huge in America, but then lampoon how huge. This comes from friend of Slate, Stephen Roderick, who was doing some very funny tweeting yesterday during the match. At halftime, Roderick tweets, most important 45 minutes in American history coming up. Bigger than the Civil War. Bigger than Mad Men. Bigger than Super Size. To which one soccer fan, apparently taking Roderick's Civil War bid at face value, replied, like the sentiment, but 850,000 casualties in emancipation. Not really in the same league. In other words, the soccer fan was saluting the pro-soccer sentiment but clarifying that U.S. Portugal <laughs> wasn't on par with the Battle of Antietam. Now who looks silly? Point to the soccer troll. Now this is number three new American soccer troll tactic. Say that unlike your troll forebears, you actually know something about soccer. Mm -hmm. And therefore your anti-soccer jabs are all the more painful. This comes from the redoubtable Pete Prisco of CBSSports.com who after tweaking fans throughout yesterday's match declared, I love when angry American soccer heads come out and say, you know nothing about the sport. Now, this is a fascinating gambit, because what if a troll wasn't a know-nothing blowhard, but an actual expert on what he hated? It'd be like if Hawk Harrelson had invented ultimate zone rating. But alas, I can't grant expert status to Pete Briscoe. For one thing, instead of typing sport in his tweet, he accidentally typed spot. I love when angry soccer, American soccer heads come out and say, you know nothing about the spot. And after reading Prisco's other tweets, such yuck says, 2-2 tie was a good game. For soccer, 
I'm thinking he has some additional boning up to do about the spot. The man covered the Jaguars for too long. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) New American soccer troll tactic number four, reveal soccer fans as hopeless nationalists. Ah. This comes from the unlikely figure of Joel Embiid, the likely lottery pick in this week's draft. (laughs) Embiid may not be an actual soccer troll, but he posed as one this week before USA Portugal tweeted, Ronaldo, my boy. Now, this was pretty innocuous, right? But as Deadspin noted, this ignited a firestorm on Twitter with supposedly worldly and cosmopolitan soccer fans tearing into MB for tweeting words of respect for a guy who happened to be playing the US of A. Responses included, quote, I'm a KU fan, but F you, you blew the tournament for us, just like you'll blow your NBA career. And quote, this w- if this wasn't the USA, you'd still be living in a third world country, end quote. Ooh. Embiid was born in Cameroon, of course. Embiid actually points out a really interesting contradiction about soccer fandom over here is that now we're so into soccer that we're turning into knee-jerk America firsters like we are in every other non-soccer walk of life. Can soccer get so popular that it ceases to become rarefied and cosmopolitan? Point to Joel Embiid for noting this irony, even if he didn't do it on purpose. And finally, new American soccer troll tactic number five. Tell soccer fans they've got you all wrong. You love the beautiful game even more than they do. This comes from the prolific sports writer Alan Barra. Back in 2002, Barra wrote a column in the Village Voice in which he invaded against quote-unquote soccer bullies. In 2002, Barra wrote, What soccer bullies want in their heart of hearts is to eliminate baseball, football, and basketball, or really any sport that uses arms and hands and thus half the athletic talents the human body is capable of. I guess that's what soccer trolls were doing all along, sticking up for the human body. Well, those were the old days for Alan Barra, because nine years later, Barra wrote in the Daily Beast he was so moved by the U.S.-Japan's Women's World Cup match that he was actually crying tears of joy during the broadcast. (laughs) He went on to compare the experience of watching the game to his father's memories of listening to Joe Lewis beat Max Schmeling on the radio in 1938. You see how savvy this is? There is no actual soccer fan of longstanding who would compare the Women's World Cup to Lewis Schmeling. And the soccer troll would counter, hey, maybe that's because they don't appreciate the game enough. Well, you know, maybe so, he just meant that Hope Solo is a lot like Joe Lewis. <laughs> I'm going to leave you to make that uh, cultural connection for us, uh, Stefan, on a future hang-up and listen. Anyway, guys, I say we welcome the arrival of the new American soccer troll. Any soccer fan would tell us that part of the fun of the game is its pluralism. It's where in the world is Carmen Sandiego-style embrace of other cultures. Plus, better opponents stimulate better arguments. I propose that all these new and more lethal soccer trolls should be afforded their own slate blog. We'll call it The Equalizer. The Equalizer. Nice. Yes. I like it. Hey, what's your jackrabbit, Stefan? Well, a few years back, while reporting a piece about wiffle ball for the Wall Street Journal, three buddies and I entered a tournament in Pennsylvania. We beat one of the best wiffle teams, extant, by a score of one to nothing. Hang-up friend and sports documentarian Jonathan Hawk homered and pitched the shutout. His labrum has never been the same. During another game, though, I noticed something odd about one of our opponent's standard yellow wiffle bats. It was corked. The barrel had been stuffed with what looked like foam and taped over. When I pointed it out, the guy on the other team got all in my face and then took it out on our pitching. Since then, two things have happened in the world of wiffle bats. Corking has become an art form, and the market for uncorked bats has exploded. My new go-to wiffle guys are Chad, Casey, and Jason at sadwiffle.com. That's S-A-H-D, wiffle.com, for stay-at-home dads. Two of the three founders were at home while two of their wives were doing OBGYN residencies in Ohio, and they got together to start playing wiffle. Here's Chad with a review of a new bat. Sadwiffle.com here with the KSCX Rev 2. This is the second iteration of the Revolution bat that Moonshot has come out with. The original version we've tested before we thought was a little sluggish through the zone, and that was because of there was so much barrel trying to move through the zone. The Rev 2's changed the shape, makes it a lot quicker, a lot more accurate, 
uh, with a little bit skinnier handle and approach to the barrel, you can move this bat through the zone just super clean, super balanced. Sounds like a great bat, right? What else can you tell us, Chad? Uh, I've never thought I would say this when I put this site together with Casey and Jason, but please save $200 and send it to Moonshot uh, and say you want a Rev 2 because it is absolutely worth the $200. That's right, $200 for a wiffle ball bat. Moonshot says it employs melted basalt technology used in Wilson tennis rackets to make its top-of-the-line Rev 2, the Magma, which actually retails for $220. The bat Chad reviewed is made from a secret sauce of Kevlar, carbon fiber, and Spectra. In his afterball last week, Josh talked about softball bats with names like the Lady Virus. The Moonshot Rev 2 is the Lady Ebola of Wiffle. Now, who would pay $200 for a Wiffle Ball bat? The bros who play in the dozens of competitive fast pitch leagues around the country, where the standard oblong hold wiffle ball heads toward the backstop strike zone at 70 or 80 miles per hour. Some leagues have uniform deals and sponsors. One league, Golden Stick Wiffle, charges teams an entry fee of $1,200 a season. Its official bat supplier, Moonshot. Chad and the boys at Sad Wiffle ranked 17 bat models for pop, distance, and feel. Moonshot finished one and two, so the company included the chart on its website, but it removed the price column, and that's because the second most expensive wiffle ball bat on the list retails for 35 bucks. One of the guys I wrote about for the journal, Tom Locasio, now makes his own bat, the Loco Bat, Wood handle, blue plastic barrel, third in the sad wiffle rankings, 30 bucks. Tommy sent me one last week. It swings great. Can't wait to try it out this summer. The classic 24-inch yellow wiffle bat ranked 14th on the sad list. You can buy 80 of those for the price of one Moonshot Magma Rev 2. If you can't afford a moonshot and you just play in your backyard or in a league where corking is permitted, Sad Wiffle has a how-to guide. There's the Twinkie method, spray foam insulation. Be careful not to overfill because the stuff does expand. And the dowel method, inserting a three-quarter inch wooden dowel down the center of the bat. Commenters offered their own techniques. My favorite, packing peanuts. Cut a half inch off the top of the wiffle bat, leaving, leaving enough attached so that you can bend back the plastic. Fill the bat with hard styrofoam packing peanuts. Jam them down with another bat. Fill to the brim. Tape shut. This is especially attractive for the possibility that the bat will break open and peanuts will fly out like when little rubber balls flew out of Yankees third baseman Greg Nettle's broken bat in 1974. If only we'd listen to Tody Gwynn when he tried to warn us. He would have been a hell of a wiffle ball player. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. Email us all at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. Leave us a warm chocolate chip cookie. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. Our producer is usually Mike Volo. Today, it's Alexis Diao. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. All of these people are made of melted basalt technology. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Hey 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.